This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. 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 Welcome, 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 welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me. Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Hello, and welcome to The Bubble Hour Archives, a treasure trove of episodes ranging from 2012 to 2022. I'm recovery advocate and author Jean McCarthy. I joined The Bubble Hour as a host in season two. Together with other hosts over the years, Ellie, Lisa, Amanda, and Catherine, we all extend to you our gratitude for listening and a heartfelt wish that this podcast will find a welcome home in your recovery toolkit. The resources mentioned on the show are available at thebubblehour.com, including information on the online support group called the BFB, or Booze Free Brigade, often mentioned on the show. Now, if you're hearing this message, you're listening to one of our free archived episodes, and we'll make sure that there are loads of these available for you to enjoy. These are partial versions of the original recordings, and if you want to hear more, you can listen to full versions and the entire back catalog ad-free by joining us on Patreon. So just head to patreon.com slash thebubblehour to learn more. I'll also put a link in the show notes to make it even easier for you to find that. So, all right then, enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Ellie, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real women tell real stories of addiction and recovery. And uh, I'm here with my co-host, Lisa. Hello. Hello. And our special guest, Andrea, who we are thrilled to have on the other special guest tonight. Andrea is a life coach who writes at the blog um, www.yourkickasslife.com. And she describes herself as a mom, a writer, a roller derby rebel. I love that. A hellraiser. She is passionate about empowering women to value themselves and to fiercely love who they are. She helps women get what they want by managing their inner critic, leveraging the law of attraction, and stepping into their own kick-ass version of themselves. And Andrea, thank you so much for um, offering to come on the show tonight and tell us a little bit about your pleasure. Yes, thank you so much. I think what we'll do is we'll just start the show asking you to kind of tell a little bit, not just about your alcoholism and recovery, but also just in general, tell us a little bit about yourself and what your life is like now, and then tell, tell your story, and we'll go to questions from there. Okay. Well, oh gosh, let me try to narrow it down. And I just, I want to start out by saying that just thank you so much. I have so much gratitude for you and Lisa and Amanda and what you're doing and, you know, Ellie, your blog is actually a, a, a huge help in me getting sober to begin with and staying sober, in, especially in the very beginning. And what y'all are doing, I think, is so amazing because myself, like telling my story and 
and talking to women like you, that's what helped keep me sober. And then if it can help other women stay sober, then it's just all that much more amazing. So thank you. That's awesome. But thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Basically, I I wanted, I love talking about this because, and I I wrote about having a high bottom and that's, that's really what my, the most, the bulk of my story is, is that I got sober last year in 2011 and I had a, a pretty short, you know, what they call being active in your disease or active in alcoholism. I was really only active for maybe a couple of years at most. So my story, I mean, looking back in retrospect, and I think all of us kind of can look back and, and look at like our behavioral patterns that changed. For me, mine started with, I mean, I've always had anxiety disorder. I wasn't diagnosed until much later, but I suffered from love addiction. I was crazy Oh my God, really? <laughs> in my 20s, in my late teens, I was, I was so addicted to love. And it's really not just a Robert, Robert Palmer song. It really is. <laughs> uh, it really is a real thing. Codependency was another one. And uh, I struggled with an eating disorder throughout my 20s. And luckily, when I turned around 30 years old, I got divorced and met a great normal guy and healed from my eating disorder was medicated at that point for anxiety disorder. That was going really great. I was finally in a healthy, functional relationship. And looking back in retrospect, what had happened was is that I replaced those, those coping behaviors with alcoholism. Like, it literally took its place. So me getting sober and, and being alcoholic, like, really, alcohol was just my symptom at that time. So by all accounts and purposes, I am a classic addict. I, I just, I latch on to whatever it is that I am, whether it's a relationship, a man, you know, an eating disorder, whether it's codependency, whether it's like, thank God I wasn't, I didn't grow up in a place where there was a lot of drugs. Because that's yeah. the, that would have been me. Right. But don't put me around Percocet or, or anything like that because I don't take as prescribed. So basically after the birth of my, my second child, which was in 2009, was really when my drinking picked up speed and it picked up serious speed. And I know that probably a lot of people can relate to, you know, I was at home. I was, I was at home. I was a stay at home mom. My son was two when my daughter was born and I wasn't working anymore. I was just starting my business around that time. And I was bored. I was really, really bored. And I was ashamed that I didn't love being a stay at home mom. I thought I would love it before I had kids thought it was going to be the best job in the world. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be so much fun and easy. And it sucked. It really, really did. I mean, you know, of course, it was, it was, I loved being a mother. I just didn't love the job of being a stay-at-home mom. So I felt tremendous guilt and shame for that. I was bored. So I started drinking and I started drinking a lot. And it really, again, it really started to pick up speed after my, my daughter was born. And it was like two glasses a night three glasses of wine a night. And at any social event, I would pretty much, it was a guarantee that I would get pretty hammered. And there was always someone there with me to do it. My husband doesn't drink, thank goodness, but there was always a friend there that would, that would just, you know, I was that girl that I was that mom that would do shots of tequila and mm-hmm. it just was normal. And for me it was, but pretty much by around when my daughter was around one, I think was when I noticed that a bottle of wine was pretty much my normal for every night. I would start drinking like right around four o'clock. And uh, what I would start, what I would assume that I was doing is that I would drink a couple of glasses of wine before my husband would get home from work. 
and I would um, put the glass in the dishwasher as I knew he was pulling into the driveway. And then I, about a half hour later, I would get out a new glass, you know, because he would think that that was my first glass of the night. So I, I would, mm-hmm. knew I was hiding it. And um, I was doing things like getting a red Solo cup and taking wine out into the cul-de-sac while my friends played. And then one time a neighbor was out there. So I'm like, okay, I can't do this anymore. That's too obvious. So I would take like an empty can of Diet Coke and pour the wine into the empty can. And that was great. I mean, that was like my ticket. Yeah. So I would do that. And I was, what else was I doing? That was, I just, there was like, all of a sudden there was that nagging voice that said, this probably isn't something that every mom does. This probably isn't something that every person does. I mean, like normal drinker. But I would push it away, push it away. And it just wasn't, it just be, it was becoming not fun anymore. Like I would get up in the morning. It was like Groundhog's Day every day. Mm-hmm. Get up in the morning, feel like crap for having drank as much as I had the night before. I would get through the morning, swear that I would either cut back or stop. Usually just that I would cut back. And then I would, sometimes I would go to the grocery store and I would swear that I was not going to get a bottle of wine. And I wouldn't. And I'd be all proud of myself. Like, woo, look at me. I didn't get any wine. And then it would be around four o'clock and, you know, my kids are, it's that witching hour, which I'm sure all of us <laughs> that have oh, yeah. children or younger mm-hmm. children know, even probably teenagers. And uh, I would freak out and put my kids back in the car and go back to the store because I forgot like a clove of garlic or something. And then by the way, grab a bottle or two of wine. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just that nagging voice. It was over and over again. And, and I couldn't, I couldn't stop it. And so to stop it, I would drink. So it was just every day. It was the same thing over and over again. And I, what happened was, is I, I reached out to a friend of mine, Courtney, who I think you guys are actually going to have on the show. She had, she had about, oh yeah, she had yeah. over ten years of sobriety. Mm-hmm. Love her. I went through my coach's training with her, and I knew that she had been sober for a long time. And I knew that she was a mother like myself. And I called her up and I said, you know, I think I might want to talk to you about this. And I was so afraid that she would be like. Oh my God, are you serious? You know, you need to get sober. You need to get up in rehab. And it was so awesome because she was like, okay, what, you know, what's going on? And it was just so not a big deal for her. And she was the very first person that, that I talked to and, and really didn't push me to, to get sober. She just let me talk about it. And that was really what I needed at that time. And pretty much once I had done that really was like my admittance that I was pretty sure there was a problem. And for me, that was it. Like, I, I only stayed there for a couple of months and kept drinking before I really knew that I had to get sober because I, and I don't know if it's my profession or if it's in my DNA or what, but I could not stand in integrity and look at myself in the mirror every day knowing that I was pretty sure that I was an alcoholic and keep drinking. So, you know, I was, I was blogging and I, and people would write to me and tell me that I was such an inspiration and I felt like a complete piece of crap because I felt like I was, at that point I was living a lie. So luckily for me, I only stayed there for about two or three months before I finally broke down and decided to get sober. And I say it like it was no big deal. You guys, it was messy and it was ugly, but, (laughs) but I, but I, that's what I did. That's basically when, when I quit. So that was that, that was a little over a year ago now, right? Or almost a year and a half? Well, no. that was actually in May of 2011. So I think, Ellie, I think you're the only one that knows this story. So I have not written about this. So I got sober on Mother's Day of 2011. We moved from San Diego to 
Utah right before that. And when right, pretty much right when we moved to Utah is when I got sober. So I had about four months of sobriety, of, of great sobriety, I thought. And I was in recovery and I was doing really well. And then I got into an argument one September day, September 26th, actually. I got into an argument with my husband, which rarely happens. And I brought up some really old crap of mine and I fell apart. And I knew that like instantly I wanted to drink because that's what we do. You know, I don't, I didn't want to feel that way anymore. I didn't want to feel hurt and abandoned and um, rejected by him. So I wanted to drink, but I didn't want to break my sobriety because I had too much pride. And I really didn't want to like, I felt like I had this record that I didn't want to break. So I had heard, and, and so let me, let me preface this by, by saying that I had up a couple of months, you know, I had a couple months of sobriety and then I started thinking, what if I'm really not a real alcoholic? Like, am I, I really isn't that bad. All these people that I'm in recovery with, like they have a worse story than mine. I'm really not that bad. It was just wine. I was, I never drove, all these things. And so then I remembered, but if you drink, and so anyway, my point was that like, I was really questioning if I was a real alcoholic. I wasn't sure, but I was still sober. But I had, so I have this argument with my husband and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, well, I heard that if you drink enough NyQuil, you can catch a buzz. So that was all I needed. And you guys, 30 seconds later, I'm standing in the bathroom and I'm chugging a bottle of NyQuil. And I'm standing there for about five minutes. Like, my husband had taken the kids, by the way. I'm, I'm home by myself at this point. And I didn't, nothing happened. And I was all pissed. And then I remember I had heard a speaker in, in a recovery meeting talking about how she used to drink vanilla extract to get drunk. And I thought, okay, well, that's not really drinking. So I, and I'd never even heard that before. So I went to the pantry and I got a bottle of vanilla extracts, which I didn't even know we had. I took a swig of it and it was so effing disgusting. And I look at the bottle, you guys, and it had expired in 2005. And there was sediment that had settled along the bottom oh, of this bottle of vanilla mm-hmm. extract. And I'm standing there in the, in the pantry thinking to myself, who the hell does this? Yeah. Who drinks NyQuil right. and vanilla extract thinking that she's not breaking her sobriety? And at that moment, I knew, well, first of all, I knew that I had broken my sobriety and <laughs> that I had relapsed. And also that was, I feel, that was the universe's way of saying, hey, Guess what? <laughs> With an alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> you're wondering. <laughs> Mystery solved. Yes. Yes. No longer. I called my friend Courtney and I was crying and I just, and I was telling her and she was like, she said, honey, someday you're going to laugh about this, but it's not funny right now. And I was like, it kind of is. She calls it my, what does she call it? She calls it like my Nyquil vanilla haze or something. So it was just, it was just that. And that was it. And that was all I needed. And I, so I knew it. And so that was actually, that was September 26th of 2011. So that was my second sobriety date. And so now I have, I think I have like 14 or 15 months. So I yeah, don't drink yeah. No more vanilla extract or NyQuil. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love you for sharing that. Thank you I so much for telling you. that NyQuil story. That was the best. Thank you. It just, and know. that one was so, and that one I actually have not written about on my blog because that one is like, it's one thing to drink too much wine, but it's like, come on. Like, I, it just, it, it's still kind of embarrassing, you know? No, like, I, I know <laughs> many women who have done the same thing. It, it, it's amazing how many people have done that. Everybody sort of has that one out-of-body experience where you sort of float away from yourself and you're looking at yourself, yep. like, standing in your pantry. And for me, it was, like, 2 o'clock in the morning in my underwear, sipping, you know, 
brandy somebody had given us for Christmas two years before. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of mm-hmm. where you see yourself from, from some weird objective distance and you think, oh, my gosh, who is that? What just happened? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I think without that particular experience at some point, whether you get sober right after that or not, that's kind of a turning point. If you're questioning, should I or should I not be drinking cooking brandy or cooking sherry, you <laughs> might be an alcoholic. Yeah, you might be an alcoholic. Yeah, you definitely might be. I definitely did that. I drank cooking sherry, and that was a big sign that I don't see normal people just guzzle this. So, yeah. 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 We can put that You went from drink to guzzle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm just going to go ahead and be honest. (laughs) Oh, trust me. I have taken, I have found myself, and with the refrigerator door open, when my husband would be pulling into the driveway, with a bottle of Pinot Grigio or Chardonnay, whichever it was in the summertime, chugging it from the bottle just to get like another few ounces down. Yeah. I mean, those, those are out of body experiences too. And I look back on it and I'm like, how did I ever think that that was even remotely normal? Do you ever wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles, little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the Bubble Hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Well, I used to get to the point where I was hiding bottles around the house, and I can remember there was one time I was home completely by myself, and I was trying to sneak a bottle out of, like, the, whatever, the linen closet or wherever it was, and I was being really quiet with the door and really quiet, sliding it out, and it occurred to me, even sort of in a, in a weird little lucid place in my brain as I was doing that, that like, I, there's nobody here to hear me. Who am I? Why am I being quiet? And I realized I was trying to hide from myself. You just go into this weird, like, I'm just going to not think about this zone. And I just wanted to see how you went about telling your family and friends, or did you? I know that for me, it's kind of been a very gradual process. And yeah. The longer I'm, the longer I'm sober, I'm better, more able or better equipped to be able to voice what I need to say, but it took me a while. Did you automatically start it, it was the same people? for me it was definitely the same for me and I because for well I also had this fear of telling my friends and family because I felt like that was the ultimate accountability mm-hmm. I felt it was I felt like I okay so if I tell people like I am very it's serious over. about mm-hmm. this and if I break my sobriety and if I relapse and I'm gonna just I'm gonna be so upset and just like, I'll, I'll feel like I disappointed them. So for me, it was a slow process and the people I was in recovery with were, were supportive of that. And so I told, I told my mom first and my mom is a, you know, what they call a normie who doesn't train. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she was really surprised. Most of, most of my friends and family are really surprised you guys because I nobody bet, right? knew. And no I, I, there were no obvious signs. Mm-hmm. I had never had a DUI. I had never been arrested. I've never had any kind of like really embarrassing story. Like, sure, I did some asinine things when I was in my 20s, but who doesn't? I mean, well, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of us do. I should say. <laughs> but my mom was surprised. My husband was even surprised. Even my, I had, I had hidden it so well. And here's the funny thing, you guys, is that when I told him I was getting sober and he was surprised, 
And because he's a normie as well. And he doesn't understand how I can't just cut back and only drink one, right. like on the weekends. And like that to me is torturous. And I, I thought to my, my first thought was, and this was completely, this is alcoholism at its finest. My first thought was, well, if I did that good of a job of hiding it, I can't, you know, can't I just keep drinking? Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> right. The rest of the hold. It's mm-hmm. frightening. Frightening that I thought that. So he was really supportive. A lot of my friends, like a few of my friends were kind of like, yeah, I could kind of see that. Okay. Yay. Good for you. But most of them were really surprised. A couple of them even... I almost feel like you're trying to talk me out of it, you know? Oh, <laughs> yes. In there. <laughs> and, and of course, like, those are kind of the ones that I used to party with the most. And, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it was helpful that we had moved. And I just, yeah, I just, I told people gradually. And my dad actually, I think was the hardest to tell because my dad has 19 years of sobriety. <clears throat> and well, he got sober when I was 18 and it actually broke up my parents. His alcoholism broke up my parents' marriage. And I know it was more things than that, but he was a high-functioning alcoholic. He was, I, the apple didn't fall far from the tree at all. And right. I grew up thinking that everybody's dad drank eight to 12 beers every night. And he was never drunk. He was never yelled. And unfortunately, it was the demise of, of my parents' marriage. But seeing him get sober when I was that young, even though I was in denial when I was 18, thinking that he was an alcoholic, but it was really extremely helpful to me. And uh, I don't know, my dad and I have just one of those kind of interesting relationships. And I, I told him and he was so proud of me and so emotional, but uh, he never questioned it. Like he didn't know I was an alcoholic, but he never said, are you sure? Like, I think he kind of knew, like he, he got it because mm-hmm. he, he did the one too. I think as alcoholics, we kind of share this common knowledge that normal people don't understand. And so he was like one of the very last people that, that I told, but I think he was the hardest. I can totally yeah. relate to everything you just said. I also had friends who tried desperately to talk me out of it. And I so badly wanted to just say, okay, if you say so, you know, it would have been a lot easier. But I get that. And it sounds like we have very similar experiences. Mm-hmm. Did I carry over into, I mean, how did that affect your early sobriety, Andrea? I mean, was it the kind of thing where you had to make a lot of changes with the people you hung out with? It doesn't sound that way. I mean, did you, what sort of things did you have to alter to sort of protect your sobriety if you were gradually letting people know things like that? I mean, if you're coming at it from, from trying to convince people that you have a problem and then you're going out with them and they, you know, did it make yeah. it harder, do you think? Or what was... I think that, well, I think this is where my story might be a little bit unique in that because we had moved to another state and we moved from a place where, where both my husband and I were born and raised. So I didn't, that wasn't really as much of a struggle. So for me, when I was in early sobriety, where I had to be really careful was that I had to be really adamant with the people that I was very close to, such as my husband and my mother, because where we moved to, we moved close to my mom. I had to really tell them, like, definitely I am an alcoholic. I am mm-hmm. not just playing around with this because I know that I would be really, it would be easy for me to manipulate them and be like, well, I kind of don't think that I am anymore. And I think I'm just going to like try just drinking. Kidding. I had to... I had to have that heart to heart with my husband and tell him, like, look, if I ever come to you and try to tell you that I'm not, call bullshit on me. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Because I am, for sure. 
what was the general reaction from your readers or from the more the sort of online community who kind of knew you one way and then you mm-hmm. came out with this revelation? I mean, did, did, was it what you expected? Did you have expectations from what happened? I didn't have any expectations. I was scared out of my mind. I will tell you that. I had, I had wanted to come out way before my one-year anniversary, and I, um, I had actually written that post months before that. And when it came, to, I, I think I had about eight months of sobriety and I was going to post it and I would, I would, I'm a runner. And so I would go out on these runs and I would feel this voice from the universe. And I always had these, I call them downloads. And I was, where I was being pushed to come out with this because I knew there were so many people like me that needed to hear my story. And so I talked to my friend Courtney about it and she's like, okay, you know, go ahead. And I, so I wrote it and I went to hit publish and I had like a full meltdown panic attack. And I didn't know what that was about until I called her and I talked to her and she said, you know what? Your early sobriety is so precious. It's like a newborn baby. So why don't you treat it like that? And those people will be okay that you think that you need to save and help <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. So um, uh, probably just wait till your one-year anniversary. And that felt so much better. So, I mean, you guys, when I went to, even when it was, I had my anniversary and went to hit publish, I was sick to my stomach. I was so scared. And I had to call some friends and, and hold their hand and, and, and do it. And I was... I was really overwhelmed with the response. I had so many emails that I was just, I mean, half of them were women telling me their story and thanking me, and half of them were people just supporting me or telling me that they have a loved one who had a similar story and thanking me. I was actually, I call it an emotional hangover because I I had to walk away from the computer for a couple of days and just sort of it was just, it was so overwhelming because, again, I didn't have any expectations. I, I was pretty sure that nobody was going to call me a jerk or anything like that. And, and if they did think that, I was pretty sure they weren't going to email me and tell me. I only have one weirdo on my Facebook page, but I, I just deleted him and <laughs> banned him from the page. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he was my Delete. You just never know. Yeah, who the trolls are. But it was really, I mean, I kept a lot of the emails where people were thanking me or asking me, you know, if they thought, if I thought that they had a problem and it was just, it felt really good to be able to, to give back. But I mean, to answer your question, I, I was totally not expecting that much of a response. That so, much support. Um, yeah. I was glad. Or that yeah. much of a connection. I mean, I think I, you know, I, I experienced a similar sort of gut-wrenching moment when I decided to blog about my relapse last year. And mm-hmm. it was the same kind of dichotomy of coming back from a relapse and being a blogger who actually blogged about recovery and sobriety and feeling like I can't be telling right. people to tell the truth and find community and do all these things if I'm not being honest, but timing it as to when, I'm, when am I ready for whatever kind of mm-hmm. reaction. You don't want the there. You don't get to control how people respond. And that's true even if you're not a blogger. I mean, even if you're just deciding mm-hmm. to tell the people in your life, once you set that ball in motion, you don't get to control people's response. And so it can yeah. be very scary. And you need to, you know, I, I think it's a great kind of, not lesson, but um, I don't know, example for people who you're not, I, I did this crazy thing when the first time I got sober, I, I just wanted to run around and tell everybody everything I had ever done. Yeah, nothing cloud. So long enough in the grocery store, I'd be like, hey, guess what? I'm an alcoholic. And I'm an, you know, and I did that. I started doing that. It was crazy. I was telling everybody. Kind of, it made me so better, but it made everybody else kind of scratch their head, I think, because they, you know, I think that it was more, I had to sort of learn what, what other people's business is and what's mine, and then also how to protect my recovery. I, you, I, I couldn't be honest about it until I 
felt it wouldn't jeopardize my, my sobriety, mm-hmm. which is a tricky line to find sometimes. And it's the same thing with telling friends and family. It, the urge may be there to rush out and tell everybody, but if some people aren't safe here, it's okay to wait. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the Bubble Hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit thebubblehour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by the Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. Others find the message of recovery we champion on the Bubble Hour. Plus, get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on Patreon. Patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available, as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast, Tiny Bubbles. Become a Bubble Hour patron today at patreon.com slash thebubblehour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope. and I talk a lot about the stigma of alcoholism, how we all have these pictures in our brain of exactly what we think an alcoholic looks like. Usually, we, you know, the, the really and truly what I used to think of when I thought of an alcoholic was a bum in the gutter, you know, maybe mm-hmm. without teeth, possibly without teeth, but usually, usually that would be the picture that popped into my head. And I, I always thought, but I don't, I have all my teeth and... I have a college degree, and I'm successful, and, you know, I have lots of friends, and people like me, and I've done this well, and I've done that well, and I can't possibly be an alcoholic. I don't, I don't fit that, that, that picture, and I guess that kind of makes me think about how we're always talking about the stigma as it pertains to women specifically on this show. We, we really talk about that a lot because I think there's just such a huge barrier and the, the stigma that you were afraid you may or may not face, did it affect your decision when you initially, you know, decided to get sober? Were you kind of mm-hmm. thinking, what if people see me differently? I know you mentioned that you had two children who are two years apart, mm-hmm. as do I. I have a little girl who's, who was two when my son was born. And a lot of my hesitation about telling people has been directly related to the fear that I afraid that my children will, you know, suffer negative consequences because of me being open about being in recovery. And mm-hmm. I really, I don't know if it's my, the area where I live or, but I do, I do, and I think it's probably everywhere, but I do, I do sense the, the judgment and, yeah. and maybe it's all in my head, but so I'm just kind of learning how to tell people and I have to weigh every decision that I make against my children and my children are older than yours, but I don't want to just bust out with it and have some set for quiet say, well, then my child can't play with your child at your house. No way. You're an Mm -hmm. alcoholic. And I wondered if you've kind of thought that or felt that, or if it's been an issue for you, maybe not, hopefully not, but well, I, no, I, I totally think that there's, there's a huge stigma and I think that, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I think that we still have this idea in our mind of what an alcoholic looks like. And, 
if you even look at the media nowadays and how women alcoholics are portrayed in movies, I mean, remember the movie When a Man Loves a Woman with Meg Ryan? So, I mean, I know that was Hollywood, and, and but that's, that's, not, that's not how I was. And oh, so, I wasn't either. I remember even, and this is so funny, I know Ellie, you and I have had this conversation before, but when I was still drinking, that's when you were on Oprah. And that's when that I was watching, <laughs> probably with a glass of wine in my hand, watching. And I remember, I think it was you that was talking about how you used to bottles around. And there was yeah, another mom on animated. there that, yeah, <laughs> there was another mom on there that was, that was really bad. And she was still drinking and they were showing her still drunk. And I was sitting there judging, sitting on the couch going like, oh my God, like you, those are terrible mothers. Like that's not me. And, and, and I'm fine as I finished my bottle of wine. So I, I think that I think that for me, I felt like the stigma was you must be a terrible mother if you're an alcoholic. This is what I made up in my mind. And because of what I did for a living, I told myself there's no way that I can come out and be in the helping profession. Like people will think I'm a fraud. People will think I'm an idiot. People will think I'm, I'm not good at what I do, which deep down, I knew that none of that was true. So I, and I also know that stigma and shame breed in silence. And mm-hmm. that I also know that judgment, other people's judgments comes from their own insecurities of themselves. And those are projections of their own fears. So that Nutford mom that might be judging you or might be judging me, quite honestly, I don't want to be her friend. And oh, I would really probably rather not my children be right. <laughs> her children. So I just, Again, like I, I'm a big follower of the work of Brene Brown <clears throat> and the work that she's done around shame. And I do. I'm such a groupie. I love her. If I, love I wasn't her. married already, I'd ask her to marry me. I'd no, me too. No, I got her first. <laughs> <She's> awesome. <laughs> but the and you know she's the one that talks about how shame is it breeds in silence. And I, I there was no way that I was going to. And I, and I believe that, and this isn't for everyone. I'm not saying that everyone that gets sober needs to come out and be and open about it as we are. Absolutely not. I feel like it's part of my personality and it's part of who I am. So that's what I want my kids to see growing up. I want them to see a mother who isn't afraid to, to come out and say that she's imperfect and say that sometimes she's messy, but she's willing to be a better person and clean it up when necessary and be proud of of who she is and stand in integrity. That's, that's what I want them to see. That, to me, trumps any label of being an alcoholic. You know, on that same note, I wanted my kids to grow up in a house without booze. I wanted my kids to see, I didn't want them to equate relaxing with drinking or even mm-hmm. socializing with drinking. I didn't want them to think that it was okay to drink every single night. And that's how I grew up when I saw my dad, and I totally thought it was normal. So... Mm-hmm. I just, I didn't want that for them. And that was a huge, it was a huge, I knew it wasn't going to be the only thing that kept me sober, but I knew it was a catalyst for it. I'm, I'm so lucky that I have all these friends and colleagues that are life coaches because they're all, they all give me these like really great tools for life. But one of them, my friend Amy told me about the rule of thirds. And she said, there's like, there's three types of people in the world. There's a third of the people that absolutely love you. And this goes, if you're a blogger, if you're any, for anybody, I mean, not just people like in their professional life, but there's going to be a third of people that absolutely love you and agree with you and think that you're great. And then there's a third of people that are pretty indifferent. They're like, they can take you or leave you. They don't really have an opinion. And then there's a third of people that totally disagree with you and like can border on like they really hate you and think you're the devil. 
So why are we spending any time trying to convince the people that really don't care or turn around the people that don't like us when instead we have this big group, this one-third of people who really truly love us? And that helps me a lot, especially, you know, in my professional life and in my personal life, there's always going to be those people that don't like us. And it's really, we could spend the rest of our life trying to convince them that we're right, trying to convince them that we are good people and they are just never going to come around. To me, it's like, who gives a crap, really? Right. Well, and it's amazing how, at least for me, I can spend like a disproportionate amount of energy in the second two thirds. You know, especially in the mm-hmm. last where I just feel like, you know, I had that person looked at me kind of strange in the supermarket <laughs> think about it for hours and they were just thinking about their dog or something. You know, like I, mm-hmm. it's, it's that people pleasing kind of backdrop to my drinking. Mm-hmm. I found that the longer I'm sober, the less I care about the people who might look at me sunny yeah. in the supermarket. I, I'm kind of, I really want to kind of shoot them a bird and just, you know, roll my eyes and, I don't care as much. I mean, Mm -hmm. I used to really obsess about that sort of thing, and I'm not sure what's happened to me, but I've kind of, it's a good thing. I love it. You know, you feel so rubbed raw. Like, all of your emotions are just pouring out of you. Yes, absolutely. You know, every single thing that happens to you is significant, and you can't really filter anything because you're Mm -hmm. so, you know, like just one, at least I was, sort of jangly, exposed nerve. And I could not believe that I could get to the point where I would be able to have healthy boundaries around other people's opinions and, you know, set limits and and not try to manage everybody. Like everybody in my family or all my friends or even walking to a room full of strangers and try to make sure everybody's happy, you know, but me Mm -hmm. kind of thing that I could get beyond that in sobriety. It was totally unexpected because the first few months were so the opposite of that. I truly believe that we don't have control over anything. And trust me when I tell you that I went kicking and screaming down that road because mm-hmm. I wanted to control everything. And that's what it too. I'm glad that I, I recovered from codependency and I still have to work on that. But I wanted to control everyone else's life. It's like if everyone just did what I said, everything would be better. Yeah. <laughs> like that was my mentality. I have no idea what that's like. Right? I know. I'm sure you don't. You know, it's, it's, if I could just control everything and people would just change as human beings, then everything would be better. But I had to let go of that. And, and yeah, and that's, that's basically what it came down to for me. And to answer your question, yes, it is a form of, of prayer. It's, it's a form of just really understanding that much of life is out of our control. And once I realized I had no control over anyone else except myself and my own thoughts and my own feelings, everything changed. Wow. Everything. I could not imagine my life without alcohol. It was like it was a part of me. Right. I loved wine. I loved you. And even to this day, I'm not going to pretend like I dislike alcohol because, like, my yeah. husband and I, we go to this one restaurant and it's one of those restaurants where you have to wait a long time. But if you sit in the bar area, you can you can eat faster. And so we did that one time because I was like, okay, it's no big deal. And so they're walking by with like, you know, a pint of Hefeweizen or, you know, a glass of Merlot. And I am like watching, like like tracking the waitress. As <laughs> so I'm not immune to it now. Like I, uh-huh. I'm an alcoholic. And so I noticed, like we went, I was talking to this really quick story. We went to, you know, I play roller derby now. And those girls, they can party. So oh, yeah. we went to our Christmas party and my husband was there. And I'm sitting, you know, it was kind of a tight living room. And I'm sitting in his lap 
And I'm watching some of the other girls in the kitchen drinking and I'm drinking a Sprite. And I said, you know, it's kind of interesting that they're just drinking beer and cocktails and nobody has any wine. And he looks at me and he goes, how would you even notice something like notice. that? <laughs> and I looked no, at him and I said, like, where's the wine? And I said, because I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how my mind still works like that. I still yeah. notice and I still right. think about it. But I just, I, I felt like I had two alternatives. There's that ch- old Chinese proverb that says, if we, if we keep, if we don't change the direction that we're headed, we're likely to end up where we're headed or something like that. And I knew, I knew where I was going. I knew Mm -hmm. that if I kept drinking, I was going to get worse and that I would probably lose everything. And Mm -hmm. I knew that drinking wasn't going to get fun for me anymore. Like there's those three, but it's like, there's three different groups, the classifications of drinking. There's fun. The first one, the second one is fun with problems. And the last one is just problems. Problem. I was teetering on two and three. I was like kind of fun sometimes, but mostly just problems. I was like teetering into this third one. And, you know, I knew I was never going to get back up to that fun place. Like I, I, I could pine all day long for really fun weekends in Vegas with my girlfriends when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. That really wasn't what my drinking career was about anymore. So it was just all of these realizations. I had to admit all these things to myself and and just, I, I, again, like I know I say it over and over again, but I knew how this book was going to end. I didn't need to turn to the end to read it. Like I knew in my heart where it was going to go. Mm-hmm. And that really was my tipping point. And, and when I say tipping point, I mean, I, and I feel like this is probably common. Like I had to get to a point where the fear of getting sober and the fear of finding out what my life was like without alcohol, that fear was not as scary as the fear of staying and keeping drinking. I think that everybody has to get to that point. And it might not look like a rock bottom for you. It might just be like that admittance of, I'm not going to get any better. No matter how many times I try to cut back, no matter how many times I try to quit, no matter how many times I try to be a quote-unquote normal drinker. Or switch not to water happen. or switch to beer or switch to... It, Oh, man, like only start drinking, not drinking oh, until five or, you know. Right, right, <laughs> right. So many things. Yeah. yeah. That you're still, that you're saying you're, you are much happier in your life. You might still miss the alcohol or kind of, but you're much mm-hmm. happier as a person now and that you still do have fun. <clears throat> I am without a doubt 100% happier. And I think the moments that I do miss it, I'm not missing I don't know. It's it, it's hard to explain, and I well, it I is hard I'm to missing. explain. It's like sometimes I miss. Sometimes, I, honestly, sometimes I miss the taste of it. Sometimes I really do. When it's cold, and I would love like that warmth as the merlot going down, or you know, like at Mexican mm-hmm. restaurants. Like I love Corona with my favorite. Even when I see a picture of one, I'm like, oh, uh, I, I miss the experience of drinking. But I know in my gut what that comes with. It's oh, not. Yeah. It doesn't, it, it, I can't just have one. I know that right. one will lead to a complete nightmare, will lead to me drinking mm-hmm. vanilla extract in the pantry. Your story, I think, is really powerful because it is such a prime example of the fact that you, you know, you really don't, I mean, there's really nothing set in stone that says you have to, these things have to happen to you before you're a real alcoholic. I mean, I love that you kept using mm-hmm. that expression because that's what we grapple with. Am I a real, with a capital R, alcoholic with a yeah. capital A or not? 
And it's also the, what's so important about sharing story. I mean, I love the fact that you were public about your recovery and your alcoholism because I think what happens with women is that they may live in that gray area for a long time, that niggling doubt place. But if they, you know, if there's people that are part of their daily lives or blogs that they read or Facebook, you know, friends or something, somebody who's got their chin up and is not ashamed of it and is willing to talk about it, then I think it helps people identify and not feel mm-hmm. like they have to be more shameful and hide. Because I know from my perspective, I really, truly thought I was the only person. I, this whole world opened up to yeah. me when I heard that I was so not unique in the things that I had done. My most shameful thing was like, you know, they heard it every day and recovery right. was not a really a big deal. And it, it, it sort of normalized my emotions for me. I was way off in this extreme. Like, I, I've just got to be the most morally corrupt person. And so if people can listen to a show like this or read a blog or do something where they're able to make a connection, you know, you had Courtney to call. And it just, that, that, these are normal, smart, funny, intelligent, compassionate women that are just like you. It's not, you know, not what you think it is. So much better. Yeah. At some point, we know that our story isn't completely unique. But I think that maybe we think that it's our pain that's so unique. Like, there's no way right. that other people feel like I do. Like, this pain is so bad. This embarrassment and this shame is so bad. I mean, that's the way I felt. I was so ashamed. I just thought there was nobody else that felt like me. And it was so nice to know that, like, there were hundreds of thousands of other women out there that were right. just like me and that had done mm-hmm. that had done it and that had succeeded and then that they, they their lives opened up. So I wanted to see what that was like. I wanted to really, I just, I was done. I really, I think, and you have to get to that point. You really do. Right. It's not for anyone else to, I remember when people first started emailing me, there was a part of me that really wanted to go in and save them. And that really isn't for us to do. It's really not. Right. So I just, everybody has to do their own research. Everybody has to look into their own heart and figure out what's right for them. And you have to get to a point where you draw the line in the sand and you're like, all right, I'm done. It's wonderful to wake up feeling, I didn't even know how bad I felt until Mm -hmm. about three months into sobriety when I one day woke up and thought, wait, I don't have that feeling. It's like a constant sinus headache or something. Yeah. It was, it was really a, that was awesome for me, and I realized it, I could feel better. Well, and it's amazing. I had the sinus headache, too. And I, I remember, like, you know, the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is, is stretch your body and stretch your muscles. And I remember, like, that first stretch and then the head throb. It was just like a slight head throb. Mm-hmm. And then I would have mm-hmm. to get up and blow my nose. And, yeah, I don't have that anymore. It, yeah, it's, it's amazing. That. I barely <laughs> ever even have to take minutes. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Ellie. No, no, it's okay. I was thinking all that space that it, that takes up with the obsession and the thinking about right. the plotting it and the guilt and the shame, like when you start to erase that. And for me, it didn't come right away. I remember thinking, I was like three or four months into sobriety, and I was still thinking about not drinking all the time. Instead of thinking about drinking all the time, <laughs> I was thinking about not drinking all the mm-hmm. time. And I thought, when mm-hmm. I've just replaced one obsessive thought with another. Like, when is this going to mm-hmm. go away? And it did. It, took, it was probably oh, over 90 days. Before, I was driving in the car on some Tuesday to pick my kids up somewhere, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I feel really good. I'm not thinking yeah. about not drinking. I'm not thinking about drinking. I'm not really thinking about anything. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. That, that <laughs> I kind of had stopping. the same. Yeah. That happened to me. At, I remember going uh, going to the store at early sobriety stage. It was just hell because, I, you know, it was such a, an effort to not pick up a wine bottle, you know, or two or three. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I made it out at the grocery store, and it occurred to me that I did not even think about either going to the wine section or not. 
I mean, it didn't even cross my mind. And that was a big, huge turning point for me. I think that that was really the distinction for me is when I knew that, like, I was not a normal drinker. It was that mental obsession. And Mm -hmm. that was just the part that sucked. Like, that's when I knew I had crossed over. And it's one of this invisible line. And it just wasn't fun anymore. And I so badly wanted to get back to that fun. And just so badly not, I wanted to not obsess anymore. And the more Mm -hmm. I tried to not obsess, the more I obsessed on it. And that's really when I realized that this is something that is bigger than me. This is really out of my control. And I so fought that. I wanted to control it. I could control so much in my life. I thought I could. But uh, it was just, that was, I I felt so defeated at that point. And that's really, um, honestly, that's when I started drinking more. There was a question that came in over the chat that I, you've touched upon it. You've talked about the derby and things, but somebody wanted to know sort of what sort of healthy substitutions have you put into place in your life? Or I know that you have, they said, or do you? But, you know, in my experience, like stopping the drinking left a kind of gaping, big, huge hole. It didn't immediately mm-hmm. fill in with lots of awesomeness. I mean, it was definitely a, sort of a bleak stretch there for a while until I sort of, I found a creative outlet and my jewelry making and other things that sort of came in and was a substitute for you know, the obsessive thoughts and things getting quieter. I still need something to um, substitute all that time and attention mm-hmm. that I dedicated to my drinking. Can you talk a little bit about what you do? Just in terms yeah, of, like, I think that's a great question. Thank you for yeah. whoever asked that. And I, I, for me, in early sobriety, because I, I needed, it was that, you know, right, it was that hour, you know, that I had always opened up a bottle of wine. And so for me, I started drinking mineral water with lime because I felt like, it was something like it was ritualistic and it was something that was bubbly. And so it kind of reminded me of drinking a beer with the lime. And I did that every night for a really long time. I don't, I don't do it as much anymore, but that helped. I mean, just kind of ritualistically. And this isn't a very healthy behavior, but I, I think it's a pretty normal one is that I started to eat a lot more sleep because an entire bottle of wine has a ton of sugar and I was having major sugar withdrawals. And so my God, you guys, you know those huge double chocolate muffins from Costco? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. Um, I yeah. would eat an entire one. I was on a roll where I was eating an entire one every night. And so that's not healthy. But it's just, they, you know, some of the people in my recovery group were like, okay, well, better that for now than drinking. <laughs> You're not going to be arrested for um, muffin. Yeah, obsessive muffin eating from Costco. It's not going to happen. Yeah. But, yeah. but another, be- another healthier behavior with calling another alcoholic. I mean, that was key in my recovery. And even if it's not an alcoholic, even if it's just a really trusted friend where you can blurt out and say, you know what, I'm really feeling like a drink right now. Do you have like 15 minutes where you can chat with me? And whether you need to vent or whether you need to just talk about something to get your mind off of drinking, I think that's healthy behavior. And I know exercise is always everybody's thing. And it's always been something of mine. Even when I was drinking, I was still running. I don't know how I did it. It was probably not a pride. I did it. Yeah. I went to the gym every day to make sure everyone knew I was not an alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. It was an obsession. (laughs) I have people who ran marathons in the height of the drinking. I mean, it's just amazing what we can do. Right. What we can do. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that reaching out, I think reading recovery blogs is really helpful. I cannot even tell you how much that has helped me stay sober. Kendria, thank you so much. You have been just inspirational to me. And I know that everyone listening, I know that you have really made a difference tonight just sharing what you've you've shared. And I think many people will be able to relate to every word. Definitely. Thank you. It helped me a ton, too. And I'm just really psyched to know you and really glad that you were 
Give Aww. us so much of your time. Thank you very much. Of course, anytime. And I tried my hardest not to use any profanity because I really was trying to <laughs> want to get marked as a listen on iTunes. <laughs> well, that's I have been interviewed before and it has been have to be marked as explicit. So <laughs> Yeah. Well then it occurred to me I can't even read your bio without using profanity. So that that's you can't really unring unring that bell anyways. <laughs> oh no. Your blog is probably considered profanity. No, we love you just how you are. No. Don't say anything. I love your profanity. Have a great night and thanks again, Andrea. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrea. Right. I own it. I did that. Not proud but that was me and I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies to hide. We think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. Just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you see my old, I did that. And I'm proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Oh, yes, Just want to be free from power.